the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blinn producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Today we're going to have the opportunity to talk with the author of Terror and the Cradle of Liberty, how Boston became a center for Islamic extremism, Ilya Fayok Tiztov will be uh, my guest later this hour. We'll also talk with John Bursch. He's vice president of appellate advocacy and senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll take a look at some upcoming cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. And we'll talk with Jeremy Dice, special counsel for litigation and communications at First Liberty Institute on the latest hearings involving Aaron and Melissa Klein, former owners of Sweet Cakes by Melissa before the Oregon Court of Appeals uh, last Friday. All of that and more coming up right here on the Georgine Rice Show. First, taking a look at some of the day's headlines, Attorney General William Barr on Monday said President Trump had consulted the Department of Justice before ordering an airstrike that killed Iran's top military general earlier this month. The comments came after growing questions about what led to the January 3rd airstrike that took out General Qassam Soleimani, head of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps elite Quds Force. Democrats have criticized the president's decision to conduct an airstrike, claiming he did not properly notify Congress in advance and warning about the risk of escalating violence in the region. Secretary Barr said in a news conference on Monday that Soleimani was a legitimate military target and the strike was a legitimate act of self-defense. During an appearance on Fox News, the Ingram angle, the president said the airstrike that killed Soleimani was a deterrence to an imminent threat from Iran that involved planned attacks on four U.S. embassies. But the scale of the supposed threat was called into question on Sunday after Defense Secretary Mark Esper said he hadn't seen hard evidence that four American embassies were under possible threat. As the debate over the threat level continued on Monday, the president blasted the fake news media and their Democrat partners. He sparked outrage by retweeting a photographed or rather photoshopped image depicting House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer in Muslim headwear and a, a backdrop of the Islamic, the Iranian flag. Burisma Holdings, the Ukrainian gas company at the center of a scandal that resulted in the president's impeachment by the House of Representatives, was successfully hacked in November by Russian military agents, according to a U.S. cybersecurity company. The main intelligence dictorate the, uh, of the general staff of the Russian army, or GRU, in early November of 2019, launched an ongoing phishing campaign aimed at stealing and um, uh, the login credentials of employees of Burisma Holdings and its partners and subsidiaries, according to an eight-page report published by Area One Security, a Silicon Valley company that specializes in email security. The Associated Press reported that it was likely that Joe and Hunter were also targeted by the Russian phishing campaign, but Oren Falskowitz, chief executive officer of Area One Security, said his company could not back those claims and said the targets of the campaign were Burisma employees. Hunter Biden resigned from Burisma Holdings when his father officially announced his candidacy for president in April of 2019. 
LSU defeated Clemson 42-25 to to win the college football national championship Monday night. LSU quarterback Joe Burrow led the Tigers with 463 passing yards, five touchdown passes. He set the single-season record for most touchdown passes with 60. He also had a rushing touchdown in the game. Burrow was named offensive player of the game for his efforts. It is LSU's first national championship since 2007. LSU's win snapped Clemson, 20, uh, their 29-game winning streak. And I just might add that the Oregon Ducks won the Rose Bowl. Big enough for me. Well, the House is preparing to vote Wednesday to transmit the president's impeachment articles to the Senate where it will be disposed of (laughs) or something will happen. And the president is planning to divert an additional $7.2 billion in Pentagon funds for border barriers. The U.S. has dropped designation of China as a currency manipulator ahead of the trade agreement, according to National Review. And child poverty in the United States is at an all-time low. And saying otherwise does not help American families, the Institute for Family Studies points out. Stocks are up 495 percent in the past decade. Here's why the, you uh, probably aren't seeing that in Market Watch article. NAS Pensacola shooting was an act of terrorism. Attorney General William Barr confirmed U.S. expelled or will expel 21 Saudi nationals in training programs here in the U.S. And according to Fox News, uh, uh, the uh, Secretary Barr says the Department of Justice was consulted before Soleimani's strike as the president goes on the defensive. The left media spin regarding Trump's comments is a distinction with Without a difference, and it's meant to make it look like this was a conspiracy to kill some innocent Iranian without justification. And here's a setup story from the New York Times to undermine anything about the Bidens and Burisma so that if something does emerge, it can be written off as Russian meddling. Russians hacked Ukrainian gas company at center of impeachment. Headline, New York Times. TV's Trump News, three quarters impeachment and 93 percent negative, according to Newsbusters. And Hillary Clinton has been vindicated. Sort of. Um, Corruption charges? Well, hardly. Uh, But the uh, investigation into all of that is now complete. On this day in history, 1784, the United States ratifies the Treaty of Paris, ending the Revolutionary War. Britain would follow suit in April. On this day in 1963, George C. Wallace is sworn in as governor of Alabama with the pledge, Segregation Forever, a view Wallace later would repudiate, thankfully. On this day in 1968, the Green Bay Packers of the NFL defeat the AFL Oakland Raiders 33-14 to in the second AFL-NFL World Championship game, now referred to as Super Bowl II. 1989, President Ronald Reagan delivers his 331st and final weekly White House radio address, telling listeners, believe me, Saturdays will never be the same. I'll miss you. On this day in 1994, President Bill Clinton and Russian President Boris Yeltsin sign an accord to stop aiming missiles at any nation. The leaders join Ukrainian President Leonid, uh, whose last name I won't even attempt, in signing that accord to dismantle the nuclear arsenal of Ukraine. 2004, former Enron finance chief Andrew Fastow pleads guilty to conspiracy as he accepts a 10-year prison sentence. He would actually be sentenced to six years and be released in December of 2011. Well, the Senate is poised to launch into an impeachment trial for President Trump as early as next Tuesday. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said in a uh, warring factions in Capitol Hill ended an impasse that had left the entire process in limbo for nearly four weeks in this urgent impeachment process. The GOP leader in remarks to reporters on Tuesday also shot down the notion 
uh, floated by the president, but later amplified by Democrats, that the Senate could vote to dismiss the case. And he warned those calling for new testimony that Republicans could have the chance to call witnesses to, as he said, expectations for proceedings to start in the coming days and formally launch next week. We will be able to go through some preliminary steps this week, which would give us the ability to start the actual trial next Tuesday, McConnell told reporters, while once again stating that he has the votes to pass the so-called organizing resolution that would lay out the framework for the trial. All 53 of us have reached an agreement, he said, referring to Republican members. McConnell spoke to reporters after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that the lower chamber would vote to transmit the articles of impeachment to the Senate on Wednesday. They're going to going or rather doing so without assurance from McConnell that he'll allow for witnesses and documents in the trial, despite Democrats holding up the process for the past month in pursuit of that kind of a commitment. On the eve of the vote, Pelosi expressed concern that after the Senate gets the two articles against President Trump, McConnell could move to dismiss the trial altogether. Just have to wait and see what actually happens rather than the speculations of his political opponents. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. Also a reminder, later this hour, we'll talk about the book Terror in the Cradle of Liberty, how Boston became a center for Islamic extremism. My guest, Ilya Feoktistov. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next two segments, Ilya Folk, let me say this right, Fayok Testa will be my guest. He's the author of Terror and the Cradle of Liberty, How Boston Became a Center for Islamic Extremism. We'll also talk in the 5 o'clock hour with John Bursch, Vice President of Appellate Advocacy, Senior Counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, on the upcoming cases before the U.S. Supreme Court of interest to this particular audience. We'll also talk with Jeremy Dice, Special Counsel for Litigation and Communications at First Liberty Institute, on the latest hearings for Aaron and Melissa Klein, former owners of Sweet Cakes by Melissa, before the Oregon Court of Appeals uh, on Friday last week. All of that coming up in today's program. Former House Oversight Committee Chairman and Fox News contributor Trey Gowdy responded on Tuesday to reports that the the Senate impeachment trial of the president could last as long as six weeks after Majority Leader Mitch McConnell warned that both sides may have the opportunity to call witnesses. He's following the pattern that uh, was uh, laid during the Clinton impeachment hearing. Talk about cruel and unusual punishment for my fellow citizens. Gowdy went on to say, make them watch this group of quasi uh, litigate uh, litigate um, this case. That is torture. It's not going to last six months, he added, or six weeks, uh, he added. Well, earlier, McConnell said that the Senate is poised to begin the trial as soon as next Tuesday. He also shot down the notion floated by the president, but later amplified by Democrats, that the Senate could vote to dismiss the case. And he warned those calling for new testimony that Republicans could have the chance to call witnesses, too. He spoke to reporters after House Speaker Pelosi announced that the lower chamber would vote to transmit the articles of impeachment to the Senate on Wednesday. Uh, they're doing so without assurances from McConnell that he'll allow for witnesses and documents in in the trial, despite uh, holding up the process for that very purpose. Six presidential candidates will take to the debate stage tonight, less than three weeks before the Iowa caucuses and before the start of the impeachment trial, which could keep the three sitting senators tied up in Washington, especially for the latter group, Senators Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. That list was longer, but just recently several stepped aside. This might be the final and most significant opportunity to impress the caucus goers, a large percentage of whom are undecided or still open to persuasion. All the 
candidates have their work cut out for them. Of course, it's each cut uniquely to the challenges they face as individual candidates. Meanwhile, President Trump is meeting Democrats on their home turf tonight, uh, or at least on their turf, throwing a rally for thousands of his supporters just feet away from the spot his opponents will be nominating, uh, will be nominated uh, in July. And on the same night, Democrats vying to unseat him will debate each other in Iowa. While the decision to rally support in Milwaukee in part sends a message from the Republican president to Democrats as they seek to remove him from office, the president is expected to focus on his promises on Tuesday evening. Democrats in Milwaukee are making a different case, however. It's all part of a psychological warfare plan, says U.S. Representative Gwen Moore, an opponent of the president. Um, The president uh, will take advantage of the Milwaukee media market, which airs in the Milwaukee suburbs, a conservative stronghold where he fell short of his Republican colleagues in 2016. The rally is expected to draw thousands to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Panther Arena, which has about 9,000 permanent seats and can hold about 12,700 people. Rally goers began waiting in line to get on um, get in on Monday afternoon. And about 24 hours later, uh, major thoroughfares in Milwaukee were blocked off to make room for the supporters of the president and attendees to a Milwaukee Bucks game scheduled for Tuesday evening as well. So it's going to be a bit of a a tight squeeze, it would appear. Well, the rally in Milwaukee comes on the eve of a House vote to send articles of impeachment to the U.S. Senate for a trial over whether the president should be removed from office. The the House uh, Democrats say the president withheld military aid from Ukraine to pressure the Eastern European country to investigate his political rivals and obstruct the House investigation of the matter. And that's all being lumped in. And in fact, we're being told that there's the possibility that there will be a second impeachment inquiry into issues related uh, to the um, uh, Suleimani case, which, of course, is still very much um, uh, in uh, debate in Washington. So we'll keep our eyes poised on that. But the president uh, will begin his uh, time about an hour before the uh, Democrat candidates will uh, be will take the stage uh, in their final debate uh, before all of this begins. And uh, we'll, again, keep our eyes poised on that. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court uh, yesterday began its uh, the second half of this term in which they're taking up a number of uh, pretty significant cases. We'll talk about uh, six of uh, the more significant among them with John Birch uh, with Alliance Defending Freedom. They're involved in two of those cases, but there are a number of others that will be a um, of great interest as well. So we're keeping uh, uh, we'll be keeping an eye focused on all of that uh, as well through all of this. Uh, and again, we'll be talking with Mr. Um, Feyok Tiztov, Terror in the Cradle of Liberty, when he joins us later this hour. Meanwhile, there the new Iran Iran plane crash video is showing not just one but two missiles hitting the Ukrainian jet that was downed. During the back and forth uh, in the escalation of hostilities with the United States, new video footage from a security camera surfaced uh, today that shows two Iranian missiles being fired at a Ukrainian passenger plane, resulting in an explosion that killed all 176 passengers on board. Well, the news comes after Iran claimed that uh, it had accidentally shot down the airliner minutes after it took off from the Tehran International Airport on Wednesday. The New York Times verified the authenticity of the camera footage, which shows the destruction of the Ukrainian International Airlines Flight 752. Two missiles were reportedly launched from an Iranian military site about eight miles from the plane. 
Now, the Times also discovered that the plane's transponder spotted working after the first missile hit before the second missile struck less than 30 seconds later. The video shows that the airliner was on fire and did not plummet back to Earth right away. It attempted to turn back toward the airport, but ultimately exploded and came crashing down out of the sky. The clip was uploaded to YouTube by an Iranian user about 2 a.m. on Tuesday local time, according to the Times. The plane was headed to Kiev and was shot down just hours after Iran launched a ballistic missile attack on two military bases that house U.S. and coalition troops in Iran, or in Iraq, rather. The attacks were in retaliation for a deadly U.S. drone strike earlier this month that killed Iranian General Qassem Soleimani. We later learned there was a similar effort to uh, attack a an effective uh, general in their army that was unsuccessful. No Americans were wounded in the attack on the military bases in that retaliation. Uh, General, uh, the General Amir, who's the head of the Aerospace Division of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, told State TV that his unit accepts full responsibility for the shooting down of the Ukrainian aircraft. Uh, The Iranian foreign minister, uh, Javed Zarif, also attributed the tragedy to human error emphasizing that it was unintentional. But again, we now know that, uh, according to footage, that this airliner was downed by two missiles that struck it before uh, before it hurled toward Earth. Now, coming up, we'll talk uh, about uh, terror in the cradle of liberty. This is how Boston became a center of Islamic extremism. And my guest, whose name is uh, Ilya Feoktistov, Um, is the executive director of Americans for Peace and Tolerance. It's a Boston-based national security nonprofit organization. They investigate and confront threats to civil society in America. We'll talk more about that when he joins us in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the book we're going to be talking about, Terror in the Cradle of Liberty, documents the rise since the 1960s of Islamist networks within New England's historically moderate and century-old Muslim community. It contains a detailed and personal account of the efforts by concerned Massachusetts citizens since 2002 to expose and counter the influence of Islamist networks in the New England area, even as establishment Jewish political and law enforcement leaders in the Bay State have decided to embrace these networks as interfaith and community allies. In Terror in the Cradle of Liberty, uh, you'll learn the ideology that's preached at the mega mosque, known as the ISBCC, who's behind this mega mosque, the violent terrorists associated with the ISB mosques, how the Boston Marathon bombers were connected with the ISB, and why Boston's leaders are allowing this. My guest is... um, Ilya Feoktistov. He is the executive director of Americans for Peace and Tolerance, a Boston-based national security nonprofit organization that investigates and confronts threats to civil society in America. He co- is the co-founder of APT in 2008 with veteran activist Charles Jacobs and Avi Goldwasser. Mr. Feoktistov is an expert on the history, goals, and methods of the Islamist networks in the New England and other areas of the country. He has uh, produced, co-directed, and co-written two feature-length documents documentaries, Losing Our Sons and the J Street Challenge, as well as several online 
uh, many documentaries. Uh, he has published in the Washington Times, The Federalist, The Times of Israel, Breitbart, The Daily Caller, American Thinker, and Front Page Magazine. He holds a JD from Boston University School of Law, where he concentrated on international law with a focus on national security and the laws of war. Mr. Fayok Tistov, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on. This is such a fascinating story. It's it's surprising in one way that it's not more widely known. On the other hand, it's not surprising at all, uh, given the way um, those in the community have responded and the way the media uh, has covered this. What inspired you to tell this story to a broader audience uh, to inform us of what's happened there and could happen elsewhere? Well, you know, when we began telling this story uh, shortly after 9-11, uh, we thought we were just doing our duty as Americans. You know, we were told, you see something, say something. Um, and after that happened, and this uh, goes to your question about why this isn't really being reported, uh, we and the Boston-based media that reported on this uh, were sued uh, by the mosque uh, for defamation and violating its civil rights. It was a completely baseless lawsuit that they lost, but it cost us huge amounts of money. And since then, Boston organizations have been uh, Boston media organizations have been either afraid to report it, like our conservative media, like the Boston Herald, or just doesn't want to report it because of liberal bias, like the Boston Globe. So because people are afraid to speak out, we decided to uh, write this book as a tell-all. Well, the book really has three stories in one. It begins uh, with a story about a sweetheart land deal that really drew attention uh, to the Islamic Society of Boston in the first place, stumbling into a radical network that would foster more than a dozen terrorists in the past two decades. Another story is the story of the Boston media that ignored them. And finally, the story of capitulation um, of the leadership of the Boston Jewish community. Let's begin with the uh, the story of uh, the sweetheart land deal and how that really drew attention to what was happening and really the broader story. Well, the city of Boston gave the Islamic Society of Boston a, a large plot of land in a prominent area of the city um, for essentially a 90% discount. 90%? Uh, 90% this raises issues of church and state and the usual Boston issues of city corruption. Uh, but the, this is because the person at the city, the, the city official in charge of making this deal was also a mosque member. Um, so this shows how uh, sort of corruption and political correctness often go hand in hand. Um, so the the city did this without checking at all who the mosque's leaders were. And the, the mayor of the city, who otherwise did a really good job, um, and, uh, um, you know, he, he's recently passed away, Mayor Menino, uh, the mayor of the city could have just Googled these people and he would have found out that the mosque was founded by a man who's still right now to this day in jail for his financial support of al-Qaeda um, that one of the mosque's trustees wasn't even allowed in the United States because uh, he's considered the spiritual leader of the Muslim Brotherhood and calls for all Jews to be murdered down to the last one. Um, all of this could have been easily found, uh, but the city was either unwilling or unable to do this minimum of due diligence. 
Well, there was a uh, freelance reporter, Tamar Morad, who investigated all of this. She presented her findings uh, in an article to the Boston Globe. The Globe refused to publish the story. A year later, the Boston Herald uh, ran the story. How did the media respond once this became uh, widely known? Uh, so the ISB, the Islamic Society of Boston, hired, uh, according to our records, five PR agencies to manage the media uh, fallout from the initial um, coverage. Uh, these PR agencies got amazing uh, coverage from the local media, especially the Boston Globe. The Boston Globe sat down thanks to the PR agencies with the mosque leaders and wrote a wonderful article about how the mosque will be a moderating presence uh, to the Boston area. This was in 2004. I think the history since then has borne out uh, how wrong, how terribly wrong the Boston Globe was in this. I mean, the Boston Globe at this time was doing the amazing coverage that got it the Pulitzer Prize and uh, the recent film about the Catholic, uh, you know, the, the Catholic Church controversies. So we thought that this would be a similar situation, uh, you know, issues within a religion. Um, that was not the case. The different religions are, religions are treated differently by the Boston Globe. So we're talking about coverage of one individual that you pointed out at the time was indicted but now convicted, an influential Muslim leader who was under indictment uh, on terrorism-related charges. You have another who was described by the Treasury Department as a leading al-Qaeda fundraiser, other uh, connections better known as the spiritual mentor of the Muslim Brotherhood and um, Hamas suicide bombings uh, authorizer. And, And these are individuals that were known on the federal level, but Apparently, the PR firm was able to uh, somehow reconstruct their history or focus attention on others. Uh, again, the, the the Boston Herald started out with good intentions, but their attention was moved elsewhere. Exactly. And again, all of this could have been easily found. We've also met with local officials. It's not that they did. They didn't know originally, but they found out shortly uh, after getting into this land deal with the Islamic Society of Boston, there was bad news. And as we got sued and as we began doing discovery and really looking into its financial documents, we started seeing actual direct involvement in terrorism financing. Uh, these mosques were moving major money to terrorist organizations like Hamas and Al-Qaeda. And uh, none of this was being stopped. Instead, it was being encouraged. And, of course, the affiliation with the Boston Marathon bombers, the fact that they attended this mosque and quite likely got radicalized there, uh, was uh, a big miss for the law enforcement community here in New England. You point out that the exposure of the ISB kicked off a wave of public outrage. The land deal faced legal challenge on First Amendment grounds. Elected officials were demanding an investigation. The public outcry resulted in action by the legislative officials and judicial review. The system worked, but it didn't work for long. What on earth happened once this level of information is now being made available? What happened? Uh, what happened after was everything was 
successfully, well, not everything, but many of these efforts were successfully defeated by the Islamic Society of Boston. Now, uh, these are not some, you know, uh, bearded terrorists sitting in a cave somewhere. These are incredibly intelligent, smart, and dedicated, and well-financed groups and individuals. Uh, who know what they're doing and are very effective in infiltrating our civic leadership, infiltrating even our law enforcement community, and uh, subverting it towards their own purposes. So essentially, the media and others who have um, public policy um, opportunities uh, were simply intimidated from moving forward, or they were convinced that they that the investigation and information that had been brought to light was mistaken. How did they justify so, the shift? Um, it's so many of them were intimidated uh, from continuing with this. Uh, the Boston City Councilor, who um, who I speak about in the book as far as the legislative response to this, ultimately uh, was threatened with violence and had to drop the issue, turn it over to the FBI, which didn't do anything. Um, and the rest are pretty much convinced, uh, see, that they they look at, a lot of people in New England look at the world through the lens of a certain ideology that views um, uh, the uh, Islam and the world Muslim community as a oppressed minority that must be um, protected at any cost, and that includes uh, shielding uh, Muslim institutions and especially extremist Islamic institutions from legitimate criticism. Mm. And that's been the case here. It's simply shut down of debate, shut down of discussion, condemned anyone who uh, tries to have a discussion as a racist and move on. Mm. We're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book Terror in the Cradle of Liberty. My guest, Ilya Vyoktistov, will join us in just a few moments, but we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, the stories of the Sarnayev brothers have been told in countless places, but the story of the mosque that had, they attended during their increased, uh, increasing radicalization and the organization that runs it has not been told in any meaningful way until now. Terror in the Cradle of Liberty uh, documents... Um, uh, how these um, this organization, how it's run, it's uh, increasing radicalization of its members, the networks within the New England uh, historically moderate and century old Muslim community since the 60s have been impacted. It contains a detailed and personal account of the efforts by Massachusetts activists in 2002 to expose and counter the influence of Islamist networks in New England, even as Jewish political and law enforcement leaders in the Bay Area, Bay State rather, have decided to embrace these networks as interfaith and community allies. It really is a fascinating uh, story uh, and certainly a cautionary uh, tale as well. Um, You write about what I would describe as the second hammer blow that came as elements of the Jewish community not only refused to back up their colleagues at the uh, project that was exposing the extremism of this particular collection of mosques, but actively took sides against them. Uh, And uh, you offer direct quotes and examples of how that was done. But talk about how 
um, this notion that because the the Muslim community in general was a protected or should be a protected class, that any criticism whatsoever, regardless of how legitimate or dangerous it might uh, be to the broader uh, community, needed to be squelched and whatever direction they were taking needed to be embraced. So there are two issues involved here. The first is that the mosque's PR groups, in a very cynical sense, uh, because there are Jewish organizations and individuals include, involved in challenging the mosque, really painted this as a sort of uh, Muslim-Jewish fight, a sort of uh, import from the, of the Middle East beats, and were able to um, make the rest of the community too now and believe this to be just a localized parochial um, controversy. The second thing that it did, and this happened even before they were um, discovered, their radical ties were discovered, is uh, September 11th, the September 11th attacks really gave the uh, radical Islamic organizations in the United States a great opportunity because the left-wing response and most establishment Jewish organizations are left-wing. The left-wing response to them was to run into the arms of uh, radical Islamists. This was done out of good intentions. Some wanted to reassure the Muslim community that there's no threat against it as a whole. Some wanted to truly find out what Islam is all about and uh, what can be done to heal um, the, the, the sort of animosity uh, that might exist between Islam and the West. Um, but they unfortunately embraced the exactly wrong organizations, the ones that were the loudest, the ones that were screaming the most after 9-11, um, and the ones that were ready to exploit this. So even before we started raising threats, uh, the, the leaders of this mosque, who were, by the way, writing awful things about Jews in, Arab, in the Arabic press while they were doing it, had befriended all the leaders of the Jewish community here in Boston. So uh, they were immunized already, in a sense, from any criticism because, well, they were just wonderful uh, interfaith partners, according to the Jewish community leadership. And because of the leftist ideology that it believes in, they're just unwilling to change their mind uh, minds uh, with facts. Uh, when the facts came out, we took those to the Jewish community leadership. They were not interested. They were concerned and afraid. They didn't want to be attacked like we were being attacked as racists. So a lot of uh, pressure was on them not to get involved and, uh, in fact, to get involved on the side of the extremists. And that's what ended up happening. So as you point out, instead of looking at the data, community leaders retreated behind interfaith buzzwords without making any distinction. And there were distinctions between the radical Muslims in the community and those who were moderate and could, in fact, be considered worthy of the kind of partnership that was being sought. Yeah, so the moderate uh, Muslim community here is quite extensive, and its members helped me write this book by providing me with some uh, uh, really damning information about some of the activities that are going on at these mosques. Um, The Muslim community in New England is 100 years old. There were people uh, living here at the beginning of the 20th century, 
1934, they founded uh, a mosque, their first uh, institution here in New England, and its its uh, mission statement was that they were going to teach their kids Arabic and to inculcate them with the highest ideals of the U.S. Constitution. So this was a very moderate, democratic, and assimilationist community. But in the 1960s, uh, people who had gotten involved in the ideological uh, ferment going on in the Middle East, all the extremism that was uh, rising up, um, started moving to the New England area, and in fact, uh, all over the United States, to attend the universities here. And that's how they first uh, began infiltrating the moderate Muslim community taking over its mosques, removing its moderate imams and replacing them with uh, terrorists. Let's talk about some of the violent terrorists associated with the uh, uh, the ISB mosques. The Sarnayev brothers are certainly um, the most familiar, but there were others. Sure. So, in fact, since September 11th, there have been 14 leaders, members, donors, uh, people associated with that mosque who are either dead, uh, being killed, uh, put in prison, or declared fugitives from the law uh, because of their involvement in terrorism. And these are some uh, major individuals. For example, uh, we had uh, Lady Al-Qaeda, she was called at one point in the counterterrorism community. After 9-11, she became the most wanted woman in the world due to her high-level status in Al-Qaeda, was ultimately fought, uh, caught in Afghanistan. She was an MIT student in the 1990s, very bright young girl, uh, ended up getting her uh, PhD out in Brandeis University, which is a Jewish, uh, tr- traditionally Jewish school, um, and uh, ended up uh, becoming a terrorist, a top-level terrorist, and she was a member of the ISB, in fact, a still-beloved member the mosque continues to have rallies in support of this al-Qaeda terrorist and so on. Um, the top uh, propaganda, uh, the top propagandist of ISIS uh, used to be a Northeastern University student here in Boston. His father was the vice president of this mosque, uh, and he ran the whole social media propaganda apparatus for ISIS until he was uh, killed uh, in an airstrike in 2017. And, of course, you have the Tsarnaev brothers, who the mosque claimed uh, only attended uh, prayers a couple of times and weren't really involved with the, the community. Uh, but, as my book uh, documents, uh, the Tsarnaev family, when they came to the United States in 2002, uh, the very first month they were here, they were already involved with this mosque and became radicalized. Uh, they were not radical when they came to the United States, but gradually became so right here in the cradle of liberty. Since your book has been released um, and since you've witnessed the history of, of this decline in the Boston area, how has this impacted moderate Muslims who recognize the danger of Uh, fellow believers, but who have been radicalized? Um, Well, it's uh, stolen their community institutions in a very real sense. Uh, There was this mosque that was founded back in the 1930s that was so moderate, 
was taking out, taken over, and it's extremely moderate, extremely um, uh, how do you say, extremely scholarly imam uh, who was very uh, educated in, in the religion and also very um, respected. And not only did he have a um, Certi- uh, did he have the his imam uh, certificate from the Vatican of Islam in Egypt, Al Azhar University? But he also got a Harvard Divinity PhD. Moderate imam named Toal Eid. He was pushed out, fired, physically threatened, and ended up having to live the city, leave the city entirely, along with about half of the mosque's congregation which were moderate people who just could not go to this mosque anymore because of uh, the stuff that was being preached to their kids. So these are serious impacts on the community. And what uh, really hurts them the most is when um, sort of they, they see the top leadership of Boston, the top leadership of the United States, embracing the very same people that uh, stole their institutions, embracing them as interfaith partners for peace. Mm. Well, once again, the book is titled Terror in the Cradle of Liberty, How Boston Became a Center for Islamic Extremism. Uh, Mr. Uh, Fayok Tistov, thank you so much for your work and for talking with us here today. Thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it very much. Uh, The book, by the way, is published by Encounter. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Then in the second half of the program, we'll look at uh, the docket on the U.S. Supreme Court and a case that was remanded back to an Oregon um, court, uh, the Oregon Court of Appeals, regarding the uh, case of Aaron and Melissa, Sweet Cakes by Melissa. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, on Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court began the second half of its term. It's going to end in June. The justices will hear an important school choice case in January, a significant abortion case in March, and later in the spring, a crucial case involving the authority of religious organizations to pick their leaders without government interference. The court's also going to decide whether to grant review in several important First Amendment cases, including two Alliance Defending Freedom cases, Arlene's Flowers and Thomas More Law Center. There, uh, the ex- expectation is that we'll see a decision in the ADF case, Harris Funeral Homes, before the end of June. Uh, and we're going to talk about six of these cases to watch as the Supreme Court has resumed its work. Joining us to do just that is John Bursch. He is vice president of appellate advocacy and senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I appreciate so much the work of Alliance Defending Freedom uh, in advocating for religious freedom, but also for helping to keep us informed about important cases uh, that are at the Supreme Court or other levels of of the courts across the country. Let's talk about some of the Supreme Court cases to watch in 2020, beginning with the uh, school choice tax credits and exclusion of religious private schools uh, that the court uh, will hear arguments regarding on the 22nd of this month. Yeah, this is a case that comes out of Montana. It's called Espinoza, and it involves a Montana state statute that created a scholarship fund that individuals or companies could donate to and then receive a tax credit from the Montana state government. And in return, those monies could then be given to students and their families to pay for a private school education, including religious schools. Well, the Montana Department of Treasury looked at that law 
and said, well, those monies can't flow to religious schools or students who are attending them because Montana has a Blaine Amendment. And then the Montana Supreme Court essentially upheld that ruling. A Blaine Amendments, for those who don't know, are a creation in the 1800s from a Senator Blaine who wanted to amend the U.S. Constitution to prohibit any money being spent on religious or um, parochial sectarian schools. Uh, he failed at the national level, but 38 states now have those. And the Supreme Court has suggested in the past that such uh, Blaine amendments are on their face discrimination against religion because they single out religious schools for mistreatment. And that's why we had the Trinity Lutheran case in the Supreme Court a few years ago where they struck down a Missouri a government act that prohibited religious schools from taking advantage of a state reimbursement program for putting down those black rubber tire cushions for kids on playgrounds. It's expected the Supreme Court will take the Espinoza case to broaden that Trinity Lutheran holding and make it uh, clear that these plain amendments across the country uh, cannot prevent religious schools or organizations from equal access to funding when the states provide it. Another case the justices will hear oral arguments regarding um, is the uh, the case of uh, Louisiana law that requires abortionists have admitting privileges at local hospitals um, in one particular state. Can you explain that case and why it's significant, not only in this uh, uh, jurisdiction, but perhaps elsewhere? Yeah, um, the state of Louisiana passed a law that requires their abortion doctors to have hospital admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. And there are two reasons for that. One is that when you have admitting privileges, you're going to get a second level of credentialing. In addition to your medical license, that hospital will look at your record and make sure that they think you're a good doctor and a safe doctor, someone that they would welcome at their hospital. Uh, The other reason is that if there's a medical emergency that happens during the middle of an abortion, procedure, for example, a a punctured uterus or preeclampsia, then that uh, patient and the doctor, the abortionist, can go immediately to the hospital with no interruption in care and try to resolve that emergency. Well, Louisiana abortion doctors protested, and the reason is because the abortion industry in Louisiana is absolutely abhorrent. There are years and years of records of abortion doctors abandoning women in the middle of abortions, failing to report to state authorities, uh, minors who are pregnant and who under state law would be subject to statutory rape laws, destruction of documents, failure to have clean instruments, fraud, and so on and so forth. It's particularly bad. And so Louisiana passed this law to bring abortion clinics into the same level of medical practice as all the other ambulatory surgical centers in the state. The problem is that Texas had passed a very similar law a number of years ago, and the U.S. Supreme Court struck it down in a case called uh, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. Um, it's not clear what the U.S. Supreme Court will do with that Hellerstedt precedent. Um, there's a couple different ways it could go. It could just reverse Hellerstedt, even though it was only decided a short time ago. Uh, but the court is newly composed now, and so they may look at it fresh. Uh, two, they could distinguish Hellerstedt because in Texas, the result of the law that Texas enacted was that some women would have to drive more than 500 miles to get to the nearest abortion clinic, whereas in Louisiana, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals concluded that the worst 
consequence of the law being enforced would that a woman would have to wait possibly up to one hour longer in order to get an abortion. So the impact is very different. Or the court could do a third thing and go in a different direction. Louisiana has challenged the standing of the abortion doctors to bring this challenge Mm -hmm. based on the rights of the women seeking abortions. And because the doctors and the patient's interests diverge, the women should want the healthiest situation possible. The doctors want the least regulation possible. They aren't adequate representatives of those women. And if the court would rule on the standing ground, they would avoid saying anything about abortion itself, uh, but they would stop entities like Planned Parenthood and Whole Women's Health from bringing these lawsuits that are actually against the best interests of Mm -hmm. women. Yeah, seems perfectly reasonable. Another case that the court is expected to hear, and again, we're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, is expected to uh, come up in March or April of this year. And it concerns two Catholic schools in California that declined to renew two teachers' contracts. Now, this is a rather interesting case. It goes to the First Amendment freedom for religious groups to pick their leaders and teachers without government interference. Tell us about it. Yeah, this is what's called the ministerial exception to federal employment law, and it essentially stands for the proposition that the government cannot tell religious employers um, what to do with their employees who are serving a ministerial function. Now, a number of years ago, the Supreme Court had a case in this area, too. It's called Hosanna Tabor. Uh, your listeners may remember that one. It was a unanimous decision that upheld the ministerial um, exception with respect to a teacher at a Lutheran school. Well, these tariff cases that came out of California um, involved courts who were trying to narrow that ruling. And they basically said that you needed to have um, employees who had important religious functions. um, And they didn't think that the teachers qualified. Um, But as anybody who's ever attended a Catholic school knows, teaching the faith is an integral part of Mm -hmm. being a Catholic school teacher. I mean, even if you're the music teacher, you're going to be using songs from our faith tradition in order to be able to teach kids about faith in God, Jesus Christ, and all the teachings of the Catholic Church. And so the, the hope is that the court will take this opportunity to not only reaffirm Hosanna Tabor, but to actually expand it and thereby give Catholic schools and other schools uh, a, a broader opportunity to define who constitutes a minister for the purpose of advancing their religious mission. Now, we're going to take a break here in just a moment, but we'll continue taking a look at some of the cases the U.S. Supreme Court is going to decide on over this uh, this session that just resumed on Monday. Again, we're talking with John Bursch. He is vice president of appellate advocacy and senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom. Quick break. We'll be back to resume our conversation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with John Bursch. He's vice president of appellate advocacy and senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. They do incredible work all across the country defending religious freedom. Uh, we're talking about uh, six of the significant cases the Supreme Court is going to uh, to take up and some that we're hoping they will uh, will hear. As we wind our way through the, the list, uh, the next has to do with Baronel Stutzman. I think many of us have followed this for far too long because it's gone back and forth for such a long period of time. But my understanding is the Supreme Court's going to decide uh, perhaps as early as this month whether to hear her case. So it's not yet certain that they will choose to do so. Your thoughts on the likelihood that they'll hear the case and maybe a bit of the backstory. 
Uh, Baron Nell is a florist who creates beautiful artistic floral creations in the state of Washington. For nearly 10 years, she worked with a gay customer and provided all of his floral arrangements, including birthdays, anniversaries, Valentine's Day, and the like. Uh, but when that customer came to her and asked her to do the floral arrangements for a same-sex wedding, she took him aside, held his hands, looked into his eyes, told him how much she loved him, but said that she couldn't do that because that would be violating the laws in her relationship with Jesus Christ. And on that basis, without having received even a complaint from the couple, but just hearing about it through social media, the Attorney General of Washington started an unprecedented campaign against Baronel Suter in her individual and her uh, professional capacities and claimed that that was sex discrimination. I'm sorry, sexual orientation discrimination, Mm -hmm. even though she had served this person for nearly 10 years. So make a long story short, the Washington State Supreme Court ruled against her. She asked the U.S. Supreme Court for review. Uh, They were just deciding the Masterpiece Cake Shop case involving the bakery artist, the cake artist, Jack Phillips, and the court sent it back to the Washington State Supreme Court for reconsideration. They rejected her case again, and her request that the U.S. Supreme Court now look at it on the merits will be considered this Friday. Now, the Supreme Court could make a decision whether to take it or not on Friday, or they could just hold it and continue thinking about it. Uh, But either way, we expect that within the next couple of months, we should have an answer on their willingness to hear her case. Are you optimistic, given some of the other decisions they've made that are related in general, Masterpiece being one example, that they're likely to take this case up? I'm cautiously optimistic. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to ever predict what they're going to do. Um, But what's so perfect about this case is that Baron now exhibits exactly the way that we would want someone in society today to deal with this conflict between treating everybody with dignity and respect and love on the one hand, which she obviously does, but not compelling a a creative professional, whether it's a floral artist or a baker or a calligrapher or a painter, to have to engage in expressive conduct and to participate in ceremonies that violate their religious beliefs. The Constitution is clear that we don't give up our religious rights when we go into the public square, and this is really the perfect case for the Supreme Court to make that clear to everyone. Now, another case that ADF is representing, the Thomas More Law Center, uh, uh, you've asked the Supreme Court to hear an important case involving uh, that client. Uh, Regarding the California Attorney General, uh, requesting information, even though the uh, Thomas More Law Center is located elsewhere in Michigan. Can you explain this case and, uh, again, asking the Supreme Court to, uh, to take up the case uh, involving this client? Yeah, this case involves every American's right to be able to associate with organizations of their choice without risking being harassed or terrorized by people when they find out that there's that affiliation or relationship. Uh, Thomas More Law Center is a public interest law firm that does religious liberty work uh, out of Ann Arbor, and they sued California because California's attorney general started requiring every charitable organization in the nation that does solicitation in California to disclose to California their top donors and their confidential proprietary information. That might not be a problem, except that the California Attorney General's office leaks that information like a sieve. Uh, Thousands of records have been posted online, and it doesn't affect uh, just conservative organizations. Planned Parenthood of California had many records inadvertently disclosed through that same website. Inadvertently, in quotes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) 
Um, so the U.S. Supreme Court made clear many years ago in a case involving the NAACP that individuals have a privacy interest, an uh, associational interest under the First Amendment to not have their membership or affiliation with an organization disclosed. In that case, of course, because if you were identified as being a member of the NAACP, you could be terrorized or killed. Um, well, the Thomas More Law Center uh, employees and some of its clients have also been harassed and terrorized and threatened, including a death threat, because of some of the work that they do that other people disagree with. And so whether it's Thomas More or another organization, uh, California does not have the right to compel them to uh, give over this information when the consequences are so dire. And in particular, because California admitted at trial that they don't actually need this information for any legitimate regulatory purpose. Yeah, that's that's just incredible. Um, the, the Supreme Court, now have they already uh, considered this uh, hearing this case or is that yet to come? Uh, this one will also be considered at the court's conference this Friday. So it's okay. going to be a big day. Now, finally, the Supreme Court's opinion on Harris Funeral Home is expected before the end of June. And this is a case of uh, defining one's terms, interpreting terms, sex versus sex, um, sexual orientation. Can you explain this case? And again, this is an ADF case as well. Yes, I argued the Harris Funeral Home case in October last fall. And it involves every American's right to be able to rely on what the law says, not what some court or a government official thinks that it says. Uh, It involves specifically federal employment law, which prohibits discrimination because of sex. And at the time that the law was passed, more than 50 years ago, everyone understood that sex meant biological sex, biologically male or female. And so for decades, employers have been able to have sex-specific dress policies, sex-specific showers and restrooms and overnight accommodations based on an employee's biological sex. Harris Funeral Homes is a family-owned business in southeast Michigan in the Detroit area that's been around for more than 100 years, helping grieving families uh, process their loss. There was a funeral director that the company hired for nearly six years. That employee, who was a biological male, uh, followed all the rules of the company and abided by the sex-specific dress code. Uh, But then the employee came and gave the owner a letter that said the employee was going to be gone for two weeks and then come back dressing and presenting as a woman. And the owner was very concerned for the employer or the employee and everything that the employee and the employee's wife were going through, but also had to consider the female employees at the business who would be sharing the restroom facility with the employee, as well as the impact on grieving clients, and ultimately decided that request was not going to work. Well, the EEOC used that opportunity to sue and try to turn the word sex in that law into transgender status. And a lower federal court of appeals agreed with that and said that this federal law prohibiting discrimination because of sex compels the funeral home or any other employer to allow someone to choose the sex-specific dress code or restroom that they would use. Um, So we've asked the U.S. Supreme Court to restore the plain meaning of the law. Um, Not only will that restore the faith in the justice system and being able to rely on what the words in a law says, 
it also will avoid all kinds of adverse consequences for women. Because when you change the meaning of sex as a matter of federal law, that means boys identifying as girls can compete in sports against girls, as in Connecticut, where two boys have mm-hmm. taken 15 state track and field titles in the girls' division in the last two years. It means that privacy spaces um, can be used interchangeably, as in Alaska, where the Anchorage City Commission tried to force a domestic women's abuse shelter to allow a man identifying as a woman to sleep with the women who have been raped and abused, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, As you can imagine, the definition of sex impacts many different things under federal law. Uh, So this case is extraordinarily important. Extraordinarily important. Uh, Well, again, we don't know when the decision will be made there, but it could be as early as uh, spring of this year or perhaps uh, uh, perhaps later. Well, John Bursch, I appreciate so much the work that you do, the work of Alliance Defending Freedom, and uh, for letting us know, having sort of a general overview of what to anticipate. For our listeners who are interested in following the work of ADF, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, They should go to our website, um, adflegal.org. Um, There are descriptions there of all the cases that we're working on and other things that will be of interest to you. Um, It's a a great resource. Yeah, it is a great resource. John Bursch, thank you so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Again, John Bursch is Vice President of Appellate Advocacy, Senior Counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with Keisha Russell. She's counsel with First Liberty Institute. We'll talk about an Oregon Court of Appeals that reheard uh, the Baker's uh, cake, uh, case, rather, um, Cakes by Melissa. We'll bring you up to date on what happened and why the appeals court is hearing this case again. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, on Friday, the Oregon Court of Appeals again heard oral arguments in the case of Aaron and Melissa Klein. They are the former owners of Sweet Cakes by Melissa. Last June, you might recall, the Supreme Court of the United States vacated an earlier decision by the state court that effectively forced the pair out of business by penalizing them $135,000 for refusing to create a government-approved message in conflict with their sincerely held religious beliefs. Well, government officials should remain neutral when government decides whose faith is or is not acceptable. It discriminates against people of faith. Well, here to talk with us about the case and what's likely to happen next is Jeremy Dice. He's special counsel for litigation and communications with First Liberty. Thank you so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Can we review a bit of the history? Because we've been following, of course, here in this community, very closely the case of Aaron and Melissa Klein. I think a lot of people may have assumed, well, the case is over. And while uh, it's unfortunate they were penalized, they've lost their business, everything they worked so hard for, they may not be aware of this latest turn in which the Supreme Court remanded the the, uh, case back to the Oregon Court of Appeals. Give us a, a bit of that history. Yeah, look, it's important to keep in mind throughout this entire history that Aaron and Melissa have always been happy to serve everyone who comes into their bakery. But the crux of the matter is whether or not government officials are going to be allowed to to force them to to endorse every message that comes into the bakery. Uh, and that's just something that they, they, they couldn't do here. And so as you remember, they, they served some couples, that a couple that had come into their shop previously to, to order a cake for one of their mothers. 
Uh, and that was a good repeat business, but they just simply couldn't endorse the same-sex message that they wanted them to endorse at that time, and so they politely declined. And, and soon enough, they found themselves subject to a, a, a complaint at the Bureau of Labor and Industries. Acronym for that is BOLI. And uh, BOLI eventually uh, uh, penalized them $135,000, which was mm. absolutely damaging to their business. It destroyed it. Uh, they have been then uh, appealing that decision ever since then. This is now, I think, in our seventh year yes. that we've been working on this case. Uh, eventually, the Oregon Court of Appeals endorsed Bully's order and said that that was perfectly acceptable to penalize them this way uh, and to force them out of business. Uh, they then went to the Oregon Supreme Court. The Oregon Supreme Court upheld that. We affirmed, uh, or we appealed that to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the Supreme Court of the United States had, had just recently decided the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision out of Colorado uh, and so what they did in response to our petition there was to respond that uh, it was to respond with something called a GVR. If you want to sound like you really know what you're talking about, you just call it a GVR. But for everybody <laughs> else, uh, we'll let you know that that means that they granted the petition, they vacated the decision below, and they remanded the case for further proceedings consistent with the court's decision and the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision. And so that's what brought us back to the state of Oregon at the Oregon Court of Appeals last week to argue that the Masterpiece Cake Shop requires that court to invalidate Bully's order and, and, and to, to dismiss the complaint against them in its entirety. So let me help us understand then what is likely to be the outcome then if they are uh, told that the decision that was made by Bowley is vacated. Uh, does that mean this is a guaranteed victory for the Kleins, or what happened next? Happens next. Certainly not a guaranteed victory. No, we we, we had arguments last week in front of a three judge mm-hmm. panel, and look, those judges were very well prepared. They had clearly read the orders and they had read all the briefing as well. And we're hopeful that perhaps they will, in fact, uh, send that back down to either bully to, for, for it to be dismissed, or or maybe there's some other activity that needs to occur there somehow. I, I don't know exactly what will happen here. What I do know is that the clients uh, have always been happy to serve everyone that came into their shop. They just couldn't endorse every message that they were asked to create. And it, what's also riding along here is whether or not the government is going to be able to, to force businesses to decide between um, uh, their faith and their livelihood. That, that should not be a decision that anyone should have to make. The government should never be in the business of deciding whose faith is or is not acceptable. They have to instead remain neutral, and, and that's really what we've asked this court to reconsider here as to whether or not this court was in fact neutral. That was in fact the, the central holding of Masterpiece, mm-hmm. whether or not they got a fair hearing or whether they were neutral uh, in regards to their religious beliefs. We believe that that was violated both times here, and as a result, this bully decision should be just simply dismissed. Now, in both of the cases of Masterpiece and in the case of the Kleins, the, the issue is the disposition of the, the state actors who made decisions about their ability to continue to do business. The Supreme Court, and correct me if I'm wrong, has not yet ruled on the merits of uh, those who are engaged in business, and in particular, um, using their artistic abilities, whether or not they are they have the freedom uh, to decline communicating certain messages, whether or not there's hostility on the part of, of state actors or, or municipal actors. Uh, is that likely to be the case? I know Baronel Stutzman's case is now being reconsidered or considered by the court as to whether or not they're going to take it up. Where is all of this ultimately, from your perspective, going to lead? Well, I'll give you the answer that my law professors used to give me, and it was deeply unsatisfying, so I suspect it'll be the same for you, but it, it depends. 
Uh, you know, if the case below, like it was with Jack Phillips and others, shows evidence of a, a lack of neutrality by the decision maker, or if it shows an overt hostility towards the religious beliefs of the people that have been complained of, then the whole thing has to be kicked out. There's, a, there's an irredeemable uh, lack of neutrality and fairness uh, that's involved in there. And, and so the, the complainants just simply can't get their fair day in court, nor are they having their religious beliefs uh, uh, fairly uh, evaluated and protected here. So you know, if those circumstances line up, then perhaps that, that, that'll take care of itself with Masterpiece. But to get to the ultimate question, no, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm not sure that the court has landed down yet on where it stands when it comes to creative professionals. But what we do know is that when the government decides whose faith is or is not acceptable, it's beginning to discriminate against people of faith, and they should not do that. The government officials should never punish creative professionals who are simply declining to create custom work that that celebrates behavior and, and weddings that uh, conflict with their religious beliefs. That is something that is not permissible for the government to do. It ought to instead remain neutral and respectful of the religious beliefs of its citizens. One statement on the website for First Liberty simply said, the true test of our commitment to freedom is whether we welcome disagreement and live peaceably as neighbors anyway. The Supreme Court seems to be sending a message to lower courts that America's promise of protection applies even for those uh, forms of expression, which may be unpopular. And that's really the true test of the core values of this constitutional republic. If we're going to live up to the high ideals uh, that we seem to have all uh, agreed um, should characterize our, our nation. Oh, that's exactly right. You know, as the court said in its masterpiece decision that the free exercise clause bars even subtle departures from neutrality on matters of religion. You know, even subtle departures, they say. I mean, just subtle ones are even enough to violate the free exercise clause here. Here, I think we have much less subtle departures from neutrality. When you have the, the, the commissioner that would ultimately act as the judge in, uh, the administrative judge in uh, Aaron and Melissa's case, saying things like, you know, uh, I need to rehabilitate Aaron and Melissa Klein, mm -hmm. and things like that. This is no longer subtle behavior towards Aaron and Melissa. It's rather overt. Uh, and instead, we ought to be about in a country protecting uh, freedom of expression. And that means that freedom of expression for ourselves requires freedom of expression for others. And all Aaron and Melissa Klein are asking for is the right to have that same free expression that they expect to give to others as well. Absolutely. Now, there was earlier on in this case that's gone on now for many, many years, there was a gag order. Has that been lifted? And what does that mean for them to be able to speak about uh, these issues that have consumed their lives for the last seven years? Well, I think for all intents and purposes, yes, it's been lifted. The, the, the slight irony on things is that the Oregon Court of Appeals and its original order actually did lift that gag order that Bully had instituted against them. But I guess technically, and I don't know that anybody's really pushing the issue, but technically with the court, the Supreme Court uh, vacating that order, it actually technically reimposed the gag order mm -hmm. on kind of a technical matter. But it, it seems for all intents and purposes that that is no longer in effect. When do you expect uh, a decision? I mean, and these things are, are not predictable to the minute, but um, are we looking at weeks or months? What do you anticipate? I'd say somewhere between weeks and months uh, that we would get something from the Oregon Court of Appeals, perhaps even a year. It, it, it just is up to the judges as to when they would like to rule. But, but our hope is that Aaron and Melissa Klein are, are going to be able to one day reopen their shop 
you know, I was I was out there in Oregon with Aaron and Melissa last week, and, and I couldn't help but watch Aaron and Melissa look a bit beleaguered from the years that mm-hmm. they've been litigating this case. But yet they have a glimmer of hope that maybe this is somewhere near an end, and that one day they might be able to engage in the creative activity that has had, had one at one time been so precious in their lives. And I hope again we'll be able to do that again soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate their tenacity, Jeremy Dice. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Again, Jeremy Dice is Special Counsel for Litigation and Communications with First Liberty. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Donald Trump is meeting Democrats on their turf tonight, throwing a rally for thousands of his supporters just feet away from the spot his opponents will be nominated in July, or his opponent singular. And on the same night, Democrats vying to unseat him will have their debate in Iowa. And while the decision to rally support in Milwaukee in part sends a message from the Republican president to Democrats as they seek to remove him from office, President Trump is expected to focus on his promises this evening. Democrats in Milwaukee are making a different case, however. It's all part of a psychological warfare between his platform is entirely based on emotion. That's a quote from U.S. Representative Gwen uh, Gwen Moore of Milwaukee in an interview with the journal Sentinel about Trump choosing a city important to Democrats to hold a rally for his reelection campaign. Well, keeping people angry, keeping people upset, keeping people separated, all of this is all part of that strategy and, of course, to draw attention away from our debate, she said. What do animals do? They just kind of, well, I won't even say what she says they do on the carpet. Uh, Nonetheless, I suppose if you're the president of all 50 states, you can rally wherever you choose. Trump also is taking advantage of the Milwaukee media market, which airs in Milwaukee's suburbs, a conservative stronghold where he fell short of his Republican colleagues in 2016. The rally is expected to draw thousands to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Panther Arena, which has about 9,000 permanent seats and can hold up to 12,700 people. Rally goers uh, started waiting in line to get in on Monday afternoon and about 25 Hours later, major uh, thoroughfares in Milwaukee were blocked off to make room for the supporters of the president and attendees of a Milwaukee Bucks game scheduled for Tuesday evening as well. Well, in Mil- in Wisconsin, rather, the president has pledged to transform the state's economy uh, through a multi-billion-dollar taxpayer-funded deal to bring Taiwanese tech giant Foxconn's first U.S. manufacturing facility there. The president also has assured struggling dairy farmers his tariffs will create more fair markets and promise to replace Obamacare. He also said he would appoint judges that adhere to textualist judicial philosophy like Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Some of those promises have so far gone unfulfilled. The president once hailed the Foxconn project as the eighth wonder of the world, but the project, while massive in size, has changed. The company's building what it says will be a Generation 6 flat screen factory rather than the larger, costlier Generation 10.5 plant specified in its state and local contracts. Farmers also continue to struggle in Wisconsin. Five years ago, Wisconsin had more than 10,000 farmers. Since then, more than 2,700 dairy farmers have shut down as years of low milk prices and Trump's tariffs put the state's signature industry at risk. On other promises, uh, promises rather, he's shown more progress. He's made two appointments to the U.S. Supreme Court that have pleased conservatives. He also adopted a foreign policy approach that seeks to avoid or end so-called forever wars. In Wisconsin, that move was largely welcomed by Republicans in Congress. Well, the rally tonight in Milwaukee will come on the eve of a House vote to send articles of impeachment to the U.S. Senate. 
for a trial over whether Trump should be removed from office. Meanwhile, the final debate before Iowa is taking place for Democrats who are seeking their party's nomination. Six presidential candidates take to the debate stage tonight, less than three weeks before the Iowa caucuses and before the start of the impeachment trial, which could keep the three sitting senators tied up in Washington, especially for the latter group, Senators Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. This might be the final and most significant opportunity to impress caucus goers, a large percentage of whom are undecided or still open to persuade. All the candidates have their work cut out for them. Former Vice President Joe Biden, uh, he needs to capitalize on his standing as the only ready for uh, day one commander in chief. That is the subject of his latest ad. What he does not want to do is argue about the Iraq war vote or NAFTA uh, with Bernie Sanders. He can try dismissing Sanders as desperate or attacking everyone, but the easiest way to defuse that line of attack is to cite his eight year of foreign eight years rather of foreign policy experience as President Barack Obama's uh, vice president. Beyond that, he's going to uh, want to make the case that general election voters are not going to feel comfortable with a socialist and someone who Propound, uh, propounds the uh, left's version of President Trump's uh, re-entrenchment philosophy. Well, since the Iowa Democratic caucus voters uh, seem truly concerned with electability, that's an argument Biden should pound home as well. As for Bernie Sanders, the senator is likely to face uh, incoming fire from all directions. His biggest problem will be handling uh, Warren's accusations that he told her in private meeting that a woman could not win. He dare not call her a liar. Worse uh, would be saying she was confused. Worst of all would be allowing his telltale temper to show from Biden. He's likely to get it's uh, not. Um, uh, woman. It's the socialists who cannot get elected. If Sanders doubles down on his out of the Middle East line or cannot discuss foreign policy in any depth, he's going to uh, confirm that he is not a credible commander in chief and hence not electable. So that will be uh, among his um, challenges. Biden, Klobuchar, former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg might hit him with uh, Medicare for all. His fixation with pie in the sky spending plans As uh, Ronald Brownstein points out, Sanders' new spending adds up to at least $60 trillion over 10 years. For Elizabeth Warren, this is her best chance to reverse her slide in the polls, take back a share of the progressive vote from Sanders, play uh, to female voters and present herself as far more electable than Sanders. This was where she hoped to position herself all along before getting caught up in defending her Medicare for all plan that was not even central to her overall message. Without necessarily calling Sanders a liar for denying his remarks about uh, women's electability, she should feel free to Uh, show some righteous indignation over the bunch of uh, guys telling Democrats that a woman is too risky. She otherwise may want to stay largely positive in uh, contrast to her ineffective scuffling with Buttigieg over fundraisers in the last debate. As for Buttigieg, is Warren and uh, Sanders point fingers. While Sanders and Biden fight over votes uh, a decade or two ago, Buttigieg has the perfect opportunity to say, aren't you sick of these Washington politicians bickering about stuff that doesn't touch our lives? No wonder nothing gets done. Well, he can offer himself as a young, fresh-faced moderate, a problem solver without baggage, and a veteran who's going to run circles around Trump in the general election. He can set himself apart both from Biden on Iraq and the two uber-progressives who want to pull all troops out of the Middle East with little understanding of the consequences. Then there's Klobuchar. She would be wise to remind Democrats they can have it all with her, someone 
with more experience than Buttigieg, a better track record than Warren and Sanders on uh, getting things done across the aisle, a more electable Midwesterner than Buttigieg, and a woman who will drive Trump nuts, just like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi does. Like Buttigieg, she can afford to let the squabble play out, although she's likely to bolster Warren's argument about women's electability, implicitly tagging Sanders as a grumpy old sexist. Tom Steyer will be on the stage. He should explain why it's a good idea for a, a male billionaire, and a most uh, insert the word white, but I'm pretty sick of that myself. Anyway, a male billionaire who was able to swamp the airwaves to raise name recognition and spin like crazy to round up the required number of donors to be on stage while a slew of more experienced, diverse candidates are not. His notion that we need a businessman to run for president, going back to the now thoroughly debunked notion that government can be run like a business or that business experience is a substitute for public service, might prompt some snickering. Anyway, that's what's going to be on the stage tonight as the Democrats vie for their party's nomination. Just... uh, was it two or three weeks now before the first caucuses? So that is all coming up tonight. It's being suggested because the articles of impeachment are very likely to be handed over from the House uh, to the Senate uh, as early as uh, Wednesday, uh, that perhaps the president should consider postponing his State of the Union address. That's another consideration as all of this uh, politicking going back and forth continues. Taking a look at tomorrow, we're going to talk with uh, John Schneider. He's executive director of Nursing Home Ministries. He'll join me tomorrow. We're also going to talk with one of the presenters uh, for Mission Connection Northwest, which is taking place this Friday night and Saturday. You can go to missionconnection.com for all the important details and to register. The event is free of charge, but you must pre-register. Again, that's missionconnection.com, and connection is spelled with an X rather than a T. On Thursday, we'll talk with Beth and David Borum. They're the authors, uh, co-authors of When Faith Becomes Sight, Opening Your Eyes to God's Presence All Around You. And then on Friday, we'll broadcast live from Mission Connection Northwest 2020, this year at Rolling Hills Community Church. Hope to see many of you there. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.